You are listening to the Speak Podcast. The podcast featuring talks from Speak, a public speaking platform for people with ideas and stories. Produced by Launchpad 516 Studios. Welcome to the Speak Podcast, produced by Launchpad 516 Studios. New episodes available every week on all your favorite podcast platforms. Speak is a public speaking platform for people with ideas and stories. Each Speak Talk features three key moments. The moment of truth, the moment of transformation, and the moment of impact. We host pop-up events all over the world, and now we are bringing our talks to your device. Our speakers are stepping onto the stage and into the spotlight, and now onto this podcast. Welcome to the show. Welcome to the Speak Podcast. I'm your host for today, George Andriopoulos, the architect and one of the co-leaders here at Speak. Today's episode's micro theme is growing pains, and I think we have all gone through those. We dive deep into these talks and we analyze the themes of our pop-up events, and we try to find micro themes that find a commonality between three talks that we can feature in an episode. And I think you're going to really enjoy today's talks, so let's dive in. Our first talk today comes from published speaker Angelique Santana. Angelique spoke at our Speak Beginnings event, which was our inaugural event back in November of 2022. In her talk, You Can Always Begin Again, Angelique Santana shares her story about moving back home to New Jersey at the age of 45 to help take care of her mother. What she didn't know about the return home was how healing it would be for her and the relationships she had with her mother brother and sister. Without further ado, here's Angelique Santana with You Can Always Begin Again. In the last 10 years, I was married and then I wasn't. I was pregnant and then I wasn't. I had a successful career in the fitness industry and then I didn't. I lived in New Jersey and then I didn't. I've experienced many beginnings and many endings, each and every one of them beautiful and painful. At the age of 16, when my mother left my father, I felt deserted and left behind. I was angry and afraid. It was the first time my mom left my dad and didn't take us with her. I became selfish and in that moment, I decided that I was going to do whatever it took to protect myself. My twin brother was old enough to take care of himself and my sister young enough that my dad would take care of her. 10 years later, my mom came back home. I was grateful to know where she was, that she was safe and alive, that she had returned was enough for me and I had forgiven her. At least that's what I thought. Fast forward to April 1st, 2017. I was living in Fort Lauderdale, Florida, and at the age of 45, I began the drive back home to New Jersey to live with my siblings so we could take care of our mother together. 
My father passed away in July of 2015, losing his second battle to remnants of lung cancer. 16 months later, my mother had a mild stroke. In addition to the mild stroke, she began to behave in a way that we had not seen since her drinking days. A recovering alcoholic with over 20 years of sobriety, I caught her drinking a beer and smoking cigarettes, which she also had given up. Not sleeping, not eating, and talking a lot more than she had in years. She also began to do things like leave the house without telling anyone, forgetting how to get home or not coming home at all. One time I had to go to the police department to file a missing persons report because I couldn't find her and no one knew where she was. I drove around the neighborhood. I called family members, friends, and hospitals. This was too much. My mother was acting as if she didn't care about anything or anyone but herself. It was as if I had been transported back in time and I was 16 again. This stirred up so many emotions. I was struggling and all I wanted to do was run away and go back to Florida, but I knew I had to stay. Hadn't I already been through enough? Why did I come home if this was how it was going to be? We finally got my mom to the right doctors on the right medications and into therapy. She was diagnosed with bipolar disorder and early onset Parkinson's, not dementia. Earlier this year, she stopped taking her medication and I had to have a hard, open, and honest conversation with her about what it was like. I had never told her the story about that year before. I know it scared her, especially because she didn't remember any of it. She didn't even recognize herself in the pictures that I shared with her. I didn't guilt her or shame her. I just continued to love her and do my best to understand her and create space for her to be. Have you ever wished that you could go back in time and change an experience, an event, or a decision you made? Me too. But then I get to wondering that if I changed one thing, it would change everything, and then I'd want to go back and change something else. Instead, I choose to be grateful and thankful for each moment exactly as it is. Every seven to 10 years, every cell in our body is replaced by a new cell. We essentially become new people. It's no wonder that our minds change, our bodies change, and our lives change. It's just part of living. So, if our body sheds old cells for new cells, giving us new life, could you imagine if we took a look at all of the beginnings and endings in our lives and thought, all new beginnings come from some other beginnings end. Let me say that again. All new beginnings come from some other beginnings end. When Oprah was 23, she was fired from her first reporting job as an anchor, as a co-anchor. When Tina Fey was 23, 
She was working at the YMCA. When Vera Wang was 40, she designed her first dress after failing to make the Olympic figure skating team and not getting the editor-in-chief position at Vogue. And when J.K. Rowling was 28, she was a suicidal single parent living on welfare. If all of these women had let any of these endings prevent them from beginning again, Oprah could still be a reporter, Tina Fey could still be working at the YMCA, Vera Wang could still be an editor at Vogue, and J.K. Rowling could be dead. I'm not married, I don't have children, and I no longer work in the fitness industry. What I am is a vegan chef, a health coach, a published author, and a speaker living back in New Jersey. I had no idea that coming home would be so healing, that this time with my mother would be the beginning of a relationship based on love, trust, and honesty the true foundation for forgiveness. I'm happy that I chose to start over with her, that I chose to show her lots of love, compassion, and a ton of patience at a time when she had no idea what was happening to her. I have found love within myself for myself, and my brother and my sister are my best friends. My father was a lover of family, and even though he and my mother had separated many times and even divorced, they found a way to come together in friendship and companionship until his death. I know he's happy that we're all together again. The beginning of this story started out like a Grimm's fairy tale. Thankfully, it didn't end that way. I could never have imagined my life to be the way that it is today had I decided not to begin again. Thank you. That was Angelique Santana with You Can Always Begin Again. Angelique was a pleasure to work with. And of course, she came from our channel partner, Trisha Brooke and The Big Talk. Angelique in particular was so understanding that this already established story that she had put together coming to the Speak platform needed just a little bit of a twist in order to really, really fit this platform. And her delivery of this talk was just so spot on and she was just spectacular on that stage. Subsequently, Angelique got loads of action on social media when we had posted her video and the reels from her video. And so she is definitely one of our superstars on social media on the Speak platform. We hope to see you again soon. Next up, we have a talk from our Speak Homecoming event. So without further ado, I'm going to introduce Cheryl West Luong to introduce our next speaker. Our next published speaker is Antoine Magic Ramon. I mentioned in an earlier episode that the Speak Homecoming lineup was full of secrets. Secret talents. None could be a better example than Antoine Magic Ramon, who was back on Broadway performing in a leading role in the hit musical Hamilton when the speakers first met. But Antoine humbly never gave enough information to his fellow speakers for anyone to suspect a thing. He was active in the Facebook group, he supported his fellow speakers, and he asked for support just as much. 
in his integrity, he shifted from a talk about shifting careers to a much more personal talk, which required far more of him as he worked diligently to frame a very specific time in his relationship with his mother, telling his truth and nothing more. From Speak Homecoming, recorded on March 30th, 2023, at the K Plaza Art Center in Carrollton, Texas, here's Antoine Magic Ramon with Building Self-Love Through Boundaries. I'm a mama's boy and I'm not ashamed to say it. I'm her youngest child, only son, youngest of three, with my sisters 12 and 14 years older than me. Most of what I remember of my childhood is of the two of us together. I saw her handle being a single parent, providing me with anything I needed with only one income. I saw her navigate through the eventual divorce to my father and without me knowing it, a financial bankruptcy. She was my protector, provider, comfort, my home. Seeing all she had to do as a single mother, I made myself the best little boy I could be. I didn't get into much trouble, never talked back, and did what I was told, sometimes to a fault. I never gave her any reason to be concerned about me, at least not until I told her I was gay. <laughs> the first time I came out to her, that's right, the first time, was in 1999 during my sophomore year of college. I was home for a visit and anxiously waited for her to get home from work. I asked her to sit down and somehow found the courage to say, Mom, I'm gay. Now, given my Christian upbringing, which included Monday choir practices, Wednesday Bible studies, and Sunday morning services for as long as I could remember, I was expecting a very dramatic response. With almost no discernible change to her posture, breath, or expression, she said calmly, why do you think you're gay? What followed were questions I wasn't prepared to answer, so I did what I'd done most of my childhood. I didn't speak my truth. I was too afraid of what other questions might come out if I answered even one. A space was created between us that day, one that would widen over two decades. Aided by the safety of distance, college allowed me to live my life the way I wanted to live it without having to explain anything to her. I graduate college and transition to the professional workforce as an actor, traveling around the country and world. It was the perfect alibi for not going home. I'd maintain that safety of distance by moving to New York City in 2006. Months into my move, I meet a man that I'd been in a relationship with for over a year, and for the first time in my adult life, I tell my mom. Shortly after speaking the words, I'm dating someone and his name is Jason, her response was, Oh, Antoine. Immediately followed by her plugging in a respiratory machine. The next few months were full of emails of Bible verses to read, her asking what she'd done for this to happen and urging me to pray for deliverance from the confusion she thought I had as a result of childhood sexual abuse. It was emotionally exhausting and painful. She'd even go so far as to ask me not to use Jason's name in conversation with her. She saw it as a sign of disrespect. Being a good mama's boy, my impulse and action was to agree with her. I hung up the phone and immediately felt a rush of rage. 
I felt rage at her demand, rage at feeling like a child and not an adult, rage at once again not speaking my truth, and rage at not defending my relationship. About a year later, during one of our infrequent calls, she noticed I was upset. I told her Jason had broken up with me. I was heartbroken. My mom couldn't bring herself to comfort me. And a powerful, courageous, and vulnerable act of love for myself, I asked her one question. Will you ever want to know anything about my personal life? No. That was her answer. I wasn't surprised. Every word and action before that moment was evidence. I felt I had lost the first home I'd ever known. There was an emptiness in my stomach as I asked the question because I knew I wouldn't be the same once I spoke it. I also knew I couldn't be who I wanted to be until I heard her answer. Her truth, as painful as it was to hear, was the only thing that could propel me to fully live my own. I'd hang up the phone, leave my then Harlem apartment, and walk to the 110th Street entrance of Central Park. For the next hour or so, I walked from 110th Street to 69th Street, listening to the gospel duo Mary Mary and crying. There was a deep pain felt during that walk as I remembered how immovable she had been over the years. She knew I'd experienced pain at a young age. I knew what it was for the world to hate me, a world who wouldn't or didn't take the time to get to know my heart, my spirit. That would all pale in comparison as I remembered one sentence she screamed at me during a fit of rage, pain, and embarrassment. She was in the middle of a rant, and being in awe of what I was hearing, I scoffed over the phone. <laughs> she took that to me, and I was laughing at her. With a tongue sharper than the volcanic glass obsidian, she spewed the words. It's because of my prayers God hasn't struck you dead. During that walk, I cried because I knew there were limitations to the love she'd give. And I cried because I believed there would come a day when one of us would leave this earth before she'd ever meet a man I'd love. That conversation that filled me with fear and sadness would shift into a resolve. I would no longer live my life for her acceptance, nor would I omit the meaningful parts out of fear would upset her. I would have to create an emotional boundary within myself where she was concerned, something I had never done before. The most impactful tool for that to happen was therapy where I tend to the wounds and scars that accumulated over the years from sexual and emotional abuse, I would not only discover, but admit I didn't believe I was worthy of love, and I didn't know how to love myself. My self-value was so woven into external sources, I didn't know who I was without them. I'd eventually shed a mindset that my family, friends, and successes were my primary sources of strength, courage, and value. I came to learn my strength, courage, and value started with me. Until I believed it, no one and nothing else could make me believe it. It was incredibly empowering because for the first time in my life, 
I was not afraid of being alone. Therapy allowed me to see I'd outgrown needing her to be my protector, provider, comfort, my home. I could be my protector, provider, comfort, and home. I stopped expecting her to be who I wanted her to be and loved her for who she was and where she was emotionally. Having boundaries gave me the space I needed to grow into who I needed to be. They gave me the space to heal and trust myself. Creating boundaries for ourselves isn't about pushing someone away and causing them pain. It is an opportunity for us to build the support we need from within and then choose who will be additional support. You are enough. The love you have for yourself is enough. What a powerful talk. Thank you, Antoine, for sharing your story. Antoine shared with us that his story has developed in every beautiful way you could hope for or imagine, which includes his mom meeting his current partner and sending him a personal birthday message. He continues to hold inclusive boundaries because mutual respect exists. We are so grateful you've shared the evolution of this relationship with us, Antoine. Thank you. Our final talk today comes from comedian and actor Chris Roach, who spoke at our Speak Laughter event. Chris is an unbelievable human being. He and I had so many in-depth conversations about life, about public speaking, about the industry that he's in. He's just a fascinating human being. And what struck me the most is this is a gentleman that I've watched on a sitcom. Chris was on the CBS sitcom, Kevin Can Wait with Kevin James and a whole bunch of other big names. And you deal with a guy like that on a stage and you think that you're going to get ego. You think you're going to get experience points coming to the table, meaning that somebody that is not easy to work with because they assume that their experience makes them better than anybody else. Chris came to the table as a student of the game, wanting to learn as much about public speaking as he could and to learn from our platform. And subsequently, he gave us an incredibly human talk. Chris was so honest and transparent with this talk, and I was just moved to tears by the end of this thing. Both laughter tears during and actual emotional tears towards the end of the talk. In this raw speak talk, Chris Roach takes a deep dive into the fears and anxieties that he had around public speaking way before he ever graced comedy club stages and television screens. So without further ado, here's Chris Roach with Fear My Friend, I Couldn't Have Done It Without You. Last month, I celebrated my 20 year anniversary in stand-up comedy. Now, it has not been uh, all peaches and cream. It was, it's been a bit of a roller coaster. The world of stand-up comedy and the world of acting is uh, what I call a business of rejection. And you really have to have thick skin to just persevere. Um, and I don't think I could have done it without a friend of mine. Let me go back, 2003. The company I'm working for sends me to a management training course at the Dale Carnegie Institute. It was then that I bumped into this friend. He, uh, <laughs> I remember sitting there and the instructor goes up and he says, one at a time, you're all gonna come up and you're going to tell us who you are 
why you're here, the company you work for, somebody you admire, and why you admire them. And I remember counting the seats until it was my turn. And each time we got closer, I felt my heart pounding harder and harder. And then when it was my turn to go up, I remember there was a, a feeling of uh, pulling at my pant leg. And when I looked down, it was my knees bouncing up and down. And Jerry Seinfeld once said that most people fear public speaking more than death. So if you are at a wake, most likely you would rather be in the coffin than giving the eulogy. Yes. <laughs> anyway, I realized that this problem, this friend of mine, fear, uh, that I had been voiding since high school had showed his ugly face again, and I had had enough. So I made it my life to, as they say, run towards what frightens you. Run towards what frightens you. Unless it's an angry spouse, don't do that. But other than that, run towards what frightens So I began to take comedy classes, I joined Toastmasters, and I started to face my fears going to open mics, and it was not easy. There were many times I wanted to quit, but I just kept going. At, Dale, at the Dale Carnegie Training Institute, I started to add humor to my presentations. And that's when I had that aha moment where, oh my God, I'm not gonna die. This is gonna be okay, I can do this. And that's actually, it was in some of those classes that my very first jokes were written, the one, uh, one speech we had to give about our parents, and mine was about my dad, and I remember my speech saying about my dad, my dad worked so hard as a subway cop in New York City that when he retired, to make him feel more comfortable around the house, we would pee in the hallway. <laughs> and also I began to embrace myself, things that I was self-conscious of, like my height. I was always self-conscious of my height. Just once, I like to go see a Broadway play, or a musical, and when I sit down, I don't have to hear from behind me. <sighs> anyway, this transformation began where I started to look at public speaking as this, instead of a fear of death, it started to become like this excitement that I can only compare to being on a roller coaster where when you're on the roller coaster and it's going up, click, 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 you say to yourself, my God, what, what the hell did I do? What did I get myself into? And then it takes off and it's the time of your life. And what do you say? At least what I say when I get off a roller coaster, I wanna get back on. And that's what I did. I kept getting back on and I kept getting back on and it got easier and it got easier. And then one day a friend of mine said, why don't you take this acting class with me? And I said, acting class? No, <laughs> getting in people's faces and, and acting and talking and feeling things, that scares me. And I was like, wait a second. I'm gonna to run towards this, I'm gonna do this. And I trained with one of the best acting teachers in New York City, which led me to my first ever part on my mother's favorite soap opera, One Life to Live, as Rodney, the lovable mental patient. <laughs> After that, I found myself standing on, I, I got cast in my first film, it was an independent film. I remember standing on my mark and I had just recently bought a 
a detective coat, like this long black trench coat to wear. I was playing a detective. I wore this long black trench coat and it was like $175. I remember saying, I'm going to return this when this is over because there's no way I'm, what am, when am I going to use this again? Anyway, I'm standing on my mark and the director, Barry Levinson, says, Al, we're ready for you. And next thing I know, Al Pacino is standing in front of me and I'm doing a scene with Al Pacino and he was so he was so cool, he was so lovable, and so I felt so relaxed around him that I actually made a joke, because he's 5'2 and I'm 6'6". Six, six. I said, I would love to hang out with you, and maybe you know I could say to people, hey, say hello to my little friend. And he, he, he didn't think that was funny at all. Um, but it was an amazing experience, and at the end, I'll, I'll never forget, they said cut, they wrapped, and everybody started going their own ways, and I felt a pat on my, sh on my chest and I looked over and I didn't see anybody. But then I looked down and it was Al. And I remember he said, you gave me a lot of good stuff to work with, thank you very much. And I think what I, what I wanted to say was two things, thank you very much and also it was such an honor to work with you, Mr. Pacino. But I think I said them together and it came out, thank you so much. And he said, okay, and he walked away. And <laughs> it was, I believe, the year 2016. I get a call from my manager, and she says, you're about to get a very important phone call. Don't go anywhere. Uh, and at the time, we were getting our carpets cleaned professionally, and there was this giant truck out front with this machine. And I, I was freaking out. I'm like, I got to get out of here. This is a life-changing moment, I gotta get out of here. And I remember going, I was trying to leave, and in the doorway was this large man with a vacuum hose. And he, I said, sir, I gotta get by. He goes, no, watch this. And he takes this sprinkled powder and he sprinkles it on this, on this stain. He goes, watch what happens here. I'm like, sir, I really have to get by you, please. He goes, no, 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 I wanna show you. And he was very surprised to see me start to climb over him. And I remember my wife running up saying, listen, talk to me, talk to me. I'll, just tell me, I'll take care of it. So I get in my car and I start driving and that's when I got a call from a 310 area code knowing that that's California. I pick up the phone and the voice on the phone says, hi, hey Chris, this is Kevin James and I saw you at a local comedy club. I think you're really funny. How would you like to play a part on my next TV show? It's called Kevin Kuwait. It's gonna air on CBS. I was, I, I was, I couldn't even speak. I couldn't even speak. I remember calling my wife and when I went to tell her what happened, I couldn't speak, I was crying. And from there, I remember that we were at the pilot film here on Long Island and the first scene, I'm sitting in my seat, getting ready, Kevin's do, getting his makeup done and I'm sitting there doing the positive talk, I belong here, I worked hard for this, I belong here. And standing next to camera B, there's somebody staring next to me. And it's kind of making me a little nervous because he's really staring at me. And then as I began to focus, I said, oh my God, it's Adam Sandler. I need him staring at me right now. And, <laughs> and then we were about to start filming and that little voice in the head came out and goes, what are you doing here? You don't belong here. You don't, you don't deserve this. And I said, shut up. Yes, I do. I work very hard for this and I'm going to do it. Um, I read somewhere that the best way to approach a scenario is to say to yourself, how would I do this particular scenario if fear and anxiety and nervousness did not exist? 
And then you say to yourself, and you go over step by step how you would do that. And then, okay, after you do that, you say to yourself, all right, go do that. And that, I found, helped me out a lot. So I remember filming the scene, and at the end of the scene, cut, it was a wrap, walking away, and Kevin James turned around, and he fist bumped me, and he said, you effing nailed that. And I was like, oh my God, oh my God. And yeah, it was just an incredible, surreal moment. And since then, he's asked me to open up for him on the road. Uh, next month, I'm going on tour with him for two weeks. And later this winter, I'm performing, I'm actually going to be filming my first comedy album. And thank you. Thank you. <laughs> so every, every once in a while, I got to stop. You know, I got to stop because you get easily frustrated in this business, this business of rejection. And I got to say to myself, look how far you've come. Look how far you've come for this guy that couldn't even speak in front of 10 people. Look what you've done. And to that, I say to fear, my friend, I truly couldn't have done it without you. Thank you. What an incredible talk that was from Chris Roach. Again, that was fear, my friend. I couldn't have done it without you. And Chris was just phenomenal on our Speak Laughter stage. And I appreciate how genuine of a human being he was and the deep conversations that we had. And I'm proud to call Chris a friend of the Speak platform. So thank you, Chris, for everything that you brought to our stage. That does it for this episode of the Speak Podcast. Join us next week as we bring you three more talks. And coming soon, we're going to be bringing you some bonus episodes of the Speak Podcast that change format a little bit. So stick around for that. We'll see you next time, guys. Speak Podcast is brought to you by Launchpad 516 Studios, executive produced by Fred P. Banning, Jason Martin, and George Andriopoulos. Our theme song, Champions Day, is by Lupus Nocti. Incidental music, Melting Places, is by Andreas Kantu. Music and sound effects licensed through Epidemic Sound. The Speak Podcast is hosted with Podbean. Make sure to subscribe to this feed wherever podcasts are available and leave us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts while you're at it. Follow Speak at Speak underscore event on Twitter and at Speak event on all other social media platforms. Visit our website, speakevent.com, for upcoming events, channel partner, sponsorship, and Speak at Work opportunities. And follow all the great podcasts produced by Lunchpad 516 Studios.